Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the AI Unleashed Beyond the Code podcast. I'm your host, Anna, and I am thrilled to embark on this exciting journey with all of you. I want to take a moment to share some exciting news. Starting today, a brand new episode of our podcast will be coming your way every Monday. Tell your friends and let's get into this. Let's start this off with talking about the late, great WWE Bray Wyatt Bray Wyatt, also known as The Fiend, captivated audiences with his unique persona and unforgettable performances. From his eerie entrance to his mind-bending promos, he truly left an indelible mark on the WWE universe. Bray Wyatt was a master of character development, seamlessly blending darkness and charisma to create an unforgettable presence in the ring. His ability to engage the audience and create a sense of suspense was unparalleled, making him a fan favorite throughout his career. Bray Wyatt's character underwent various evolutions, each one more captivating than the last. From his early days as the leader of the Wyatt family to the emergence of The Fiend, Bray pushed the boundaries of storytelling and character development in professional wrestling. The Fiend character, with its haunting mask and chilling demeanor, struck fear into the hearts of opponents and fans alike. Bray Wyatt's portrayal of this character showcased his versatility as a performer and solidified his status as one of the greats in WWE history. Sadly, Bray Wyatt's life was tragically cut short, leaving the wrestling community in shock and mourning. His untimely passing sent shockwaves through the industry, emphasizing the impact he had on both his peers and fans. Despite his passing, Bray Wyatt's legacy lives on. His contributions to professional wrestling will forever be remembered and cherished. From his captivating matches to his unforgettable promos, he will continue to inspire future generations of wrestlers and entertainers. Bray Wyatt's greatness extended beyond the wrestling ring. His ability to connect with fans on a deep emotional level and his dedication to his craft made him a beloved figure in the industry. He was not only an incredible performer, but also a genuinely kind and generous person. As we conclude this tribute to the late Bray Wyatt, we celebrate his immense talent, creativity, and impact on the world of professional wrestling. His larger-than-life persona and unforgettable moments will forever be etched in our hearts. Thank you for joining us on this journey of remembrance. We encourage you to share your favorite Bray Wyatt memories and moments in the comments section below. Let's keep his legacy alive by celebrating the greatness he brought to the world of WWE. Keep the spirit of Bray Wyatt alive. Rest in peace, Bray. Did Dylan Dennis took thing to far with Logan Paul? Some argue that Dylan Dennis took things to an extreme level in his interactions with Logan Paul. They point to instances where Dylan may have crossed boundaries, potentially escalating the tension between them. It's important to consider the impact of these actions and whether they were justified. On the other hand, Many argue that in the world of boxing, trash talk and mind games are common tactics. Logan Paul himself has engaged in similar behavior in the past, using provocative language and actions to promote his fights. They believe that it's all part of the game, and both fighters should expect a certain level of intensity. One point of contention is the perception of bullying. Some argue that Logan Paul has a history of bullying others, using his platform to mock and belittle individuals. However, when the tables are turned, they claim he becomes sensitive to criticism. This raises questions about fairness and consistency in how conflicts are handled. It's essential to consider both sides of the argument and aim for perspective and understanding. While everyone is entitled to their opinions, it's crucial to remember that public personas may not always reveal the full story. We should strive to approach conflicts with empathy and open-mindedness. As we wrap up, it's important to acknowledge that the Dylan Dennis versus 
Logan Paul feud is complex, with varying opinions on whether Dylan took things too far. While some argue for a line to be drawn in terms of acceptable behavior, others see it as part of the boxing world's dynamics. My thoughts is Logan Paul is very jealous of Jake Paul when you look it up, it's Ealing or showing envy of someone or their achievements and advantages. Does that sum it up? Let me know your thoughts. Let's talk about The Flash movie, released in 2023, received mixed reviews and faced criticism for various reasons. While it had some positive aspects, such as a solid dramatic arc and impressive digital effects, there were several factors that contributed to its negative reception. Let's delve into why the Flash movie was considered disappointing by many. Horrible dialogue and bad CGI. According to some viewers on Reddit, the movie was criticized for its horrible dialogue and incredibly bad CGI. The poor dialogue may have affected the overall quality of the storytelling and character development. The subpar CGI could have detracted from the immersive experience and made certain scenes look unconvincing. Overemphasis on comedy. The Flash movie was faulted for its attempts at comedy, which overshadowed other aspects of the film. The focus on comedy may have compromised the overall tone and undermined the serious elements of the story. Excessive fan service. The Flash movie was accused of relying too heavily on fan service, with numerous callbacks to other versions of heroes and villains from film and TV. This excessive fan service may have distracted from the main narrative and felt forced rather than organic to the story. The Flash movie was described as a mixed bag, with moments of brilliance followed by disappointing elements. While it showcased some of the best digital effects, it also had some of the worst, leading to an inconsistent visual experience. The film's inability to maintain a consistent level of quality may have contributed to its negative reception. In conclusion, the Flash movie faced criticism for various reasons, including horrible dialogue, bad CGI, an overemphasis on comedy, excessive fan service, and inconsistent quality. While it had some positive aspects, such as a solid dramatic arc and impressive digital effects, these issues overshadowed the film's strengths. Ultimately, the Flash movie failed to meet the expectations of many viewers and left them disappointed. My thoughts is the only good thing was Michael Keaton Batman, best Batman ever. Michael Keaton was just so amazing. Also, I liked Supergirl, played by Sasha Kelly. She didn't have much to say or do in this movie, but she was way better to watch than The Flash. I still can't see why Ezra Miller is still playing The Flash, knowing that The Flash stands for good and hope. And Ezra Miller is a fucking loser that needs to go on and stop making DC look bad. You wonder why DC sucks now because they are having assholes like Ezra Miller. He isn't a good actor anyways. He is just a loser that breaks the law and gets his own superhero movies. How far is that also... What is this teaching kids? It's okay to break the law. It's okay, kids, because you will get everything if you just break the law and be a fucking loser. Let's move on. DC, get your shit together. Let's talk out. Jake Paul and Logan Paul are two of the most popular YouTubers who have transitioned into the world of boxing. While both brothers have had success in the ring, there are reasons why Jake Paul is considered a better boxer than his brother Logan. Knockout power. Jake Paul has proven to have legitimate knockout power, as evidenced by his knockouts of Ben Askren and Tyron Woodley. Logan Paul, on the other hand, has not shown the same level of knockout power in his fight's boxing skills. Joe Rogan, a well-known commentator and martial artist, believes that Jake Paul is a better boxer than Logan. Paul Rogan cites Jake's superior boxing skills, particularly his ability to throw effective punches and his footwork. Athleticism. While Logan Paul is more athletic than Jake Paul, 
athleticism does not necessarily translate to boxing ability. Jake Paul has shown to be a more skilled boxer than Logan Paul, despite Logan's athletic advantages. Professional record Jake Paul has a better professional record than Logan Paul, with a record of 4-0 compared to Logan's record of 0-1. While Logan has only had one professional fight, his loss to KSI shows that he may not be as skilled a boxer as Jake. Fighting real fights. Jake Paul has criticized Logan Paul for not fighting real fights. Jake believes that Logan's fights in the WWE and against Floyd Mayweather were not legitimate boxing matches and therefore do not count towards his boxing record. In conclusion, there are several reasons why Jake Paul is considered a better boxer than his brother Logan. Jake has proven to have legitimate knockout power, superior boxing skills, and a better professional record. While Logan may be more athletic, it does not necessarily translate to boxing ability. Ultimately, both brothers have had success in the ring, but Jake Paul has shown to be the better boxer. By the way, this is what I heard. I don't know if this is true or not, but I hope it is. Logan Paul's ex-co-host, Mike Majlack, has recently spoken about potentially working with Jake Paul, Logan's younger brother. Here's what we know. Jake Paul is pained by Logan not wanting to do business with him. Jake has expressed his disappointment that Logan doesn't want to be a part of his business ventures like MVP and better. This could be a reason why Jake is looking to work with Logan's former co-host. Mike Majlack is a co-host of Logan Paul's podcast. Impulsive Majlack has been a part of the podcast since its inception in November 2018. He has been a close friend and collaborator of Logan Paul for several years. Majlack has expressed interest in working with Jake Paul. In a recent interview, Majlack said that he would be open to working with Jake Paul on a project. He also said that he has a lot of respect for Jake and thinks that he's done a great job with his boxing career. It's unclear what kind of project Malak and Jake Paul would work on together. There have been no official announcements about any collaborations between the two. Logan Paul and Jake Paul have had a complicated relationship in the past. While they are brothers, they have had public feuds and disagreements. It's unclear how Logan would feel about Majlack working with Jake. In conclusion, Logan Paul's ex-co-host, Mike Majlack, has expressed interest in working with Jake Paul on a project. While it's unclear what kind of project they would work on, Majlack has spoken positively about Jake and his boxing career. It remains to be seen how Logan Paul would feel about this potential collaboration. We discussed whether or not Jake Paul is natural or not. I had intended to see the film the other day, which you can view here. The beginning of the video, where we'll touch on a portion of this today's YouTube drama, and I'm a real man. YouTuber, as you are all aware, the other day, Jay Paul defeated Nate Diaz. And following this battle, he continued his brother's podcast by Logan Paul to talk about the altercation, and things started to heat up. Not really a fan because it got a little warm of spreading out your filthy clothing to air the internet, particularly when it's, we all have that pal on our family, Facebook, which discloses somewhat excessive amounts of personal data. Jake and Logan are certainly living there. I feel fully at ease performing this at the, in the end, it does result in more. Paying them any attention, there is nothing as negative publicity who is in error. Let's go right in. But first, as and subscribe as we regularly publish articles like this is broadcast on the channel every day. Therefore, Logan Paul versus KSI explore the podcast in depth. Eventually, the topic of who's will battle KSI, he is a YouTuber as well. You have no idea what will happen. Jake, is Logan going to be there, Paul? And Paul, however, they are professional battles. No, I'm on the move, yet they're activation gloves without helmet. I'm using the same card that is not mine. I think it's an exhibition, and it's a considerate or it's with a real conflict clear victor, and it will appear on your record. It is not included into your record. What I'm saying is that 
I'm not sure I I'm not sure I'm not sure if the entry in the book being absent does not imply representation legal so orthodon regarding here for given the frequent exhibition battles are absent from a fighter's official roster. Records a website called BoxRec is dedicated to hold and maintain professional records both male and female amateur boxers as well as the stakes in these exhibition fights aren't as high because the KSI's next fight won't be broadcast on BoxRec which is what they're discussing. However, because of what I'm doing, which is real and legitimate, I don't like to be in the same conversation as them. However, this is where you do come back in the conversation because he has basically said or has implied that what I'm doing is legitimate. How many boxers in the history of the sport have defeated someone only to lose to another fighter who defeated that opponent? Jake's rights here. If KSI defeats Tommy Fury, that doesn't make KSI superior to Jake. He can retire as the king of this level of boxing because he defeated someone you haven't or couldn't at the time. Since MMA and boxing math don't operate that way, KSI is a fool and doesn't know what he's talking about now, even if KSI does. Here is a picture illustrating an example of this. So press pause right away to grasp what MMA math means. B. Tommy does move KSI to the top of the rankings, but that does not imply that he is superior to Jake. I'm in a rematch with Tyson Fury, but none of this is what I want to do. I want to win the world championship, face the greatest in the business, and carry on boxing in two, three, or four years when most of these men will have retired. I failed, but I'll cope. Since I'm not a member of their family, I honestly don't know what the heck has happened, but way they choose to handle it seems to be Jake, Paul, and Logan were on impulsive discussing about almost everything related to the fights Jake gets including who is the better boxer and whether Logan is balancing his time between his family and his career. True question, which we'll attempt to resolve by the end of this exercise, is who is at fault, Jake, otherwise? Logan, normal, once more. I wouldn't talk about things like this in public, but I'll break this down now. Let's move on. What is your mind telling you? Regarding this KSI versus you thing, by the way, in my opinion, there is a condition here and a reason why it won't. Because none of Casey's fights qualify as exhibitions or because it isn't on box rec, I believe the PBA is to blame. The PBA isn't a recognized professional sanctioning body in the UK. Additionally, I heard KSI this week discuss monopolization, as does the BBBFC, have stronger criteria for granting licenses, which in part means that the majority of the influencers engaged in combat. Consequently, in order to operate, a license under the PBA is not possible to obtain. These events must be sanctioned by a body that will permit the fighters to compete. Jake has a loss on his record, thus he's unbeaten at that point, adding another check to the box. I believe Jake is trying to make the case that because Styles pick fights and KSI has demonstrated the capacity to be the best, does that automatically mean he is the best? This man may defeat this man but can't defeat this man because the styles and matchups are dissimilar. But without a doubt, if KSI, if he defeats Tommy Fury he must be ranked first, and if he retires after defeating Tommy, it will just be Jake being a troll. That's simply how it will turn out. Jake can go on. Against higher-level opponents will alter as time passes, for example. If he retires and Jake goes on a 5 or 6 and defeats opponents on a par with Tommy Fury or a higher caliber, you can proceed. Yes, Jake is back at the top. He has been fighting and has been more active. Me and him need to settle our disagreement since it's a man-on-man fight. Certainly, he is free to do what he pleases, but if you're going to flee from me and hide behind a, oh, I did this to this person excuse, then you did that to that guy and you're not doing that. That's a bad move, and I agree with you. That changed as a result of Tommy beating Jake and inserting himself into the situation. 
which is absurd. I understand JJ's perspective, though, and while it does position him at the top and make me want to see him win, the fact that he defeated Tommy and in his perception indirectly defeated Jake does not necessarily mean that. KSI and Jake, however, if he retires after, I don't think that counts as KSI because I still believe that fight needs to take place. Moving away from Jake, he's just sticking it to Jake, as they've done to one other over the past few years, in my opinion. Four years. Like Tommy Fury's, I don't want to release energy into the air. It's absurd that Logan is acting in this manner, even though I have no idea what he is talking about. Where he acts, I have no idea, buddy. You recognize that Jake wants that remap. So instead of saying, well, that's his rematch, that's his business to take care of, as Jake would, why do you think I might have to battle Tommy first? Despite the fact that he wanted the KSI fight after fighting Edge, he chose to sit by and see you handle business with KSI. It seemed a little strange to have Logan swoop in and then move on to battle him while you had no business with Tommy. Anger in the beginning. Your sole transaction with Tommy Fury is the one described in Jake's adversary who is Logan to stand there and say, oh, I'll just give you that opponent. As if he were a simple opponent. Granted to get these bouts because he is Logan who hasn't fought in years. When he returns to the sport, he can simply say, yeah, I know Jake has been saying you want the Nate fight. You guys are negotiating all that. And I'm just saying, they were never Logan's opponents. So what the hell are we talking about in this fight? Foolish man, I just gave you several gifts. So why are you acting like such a jerk? Yes, thanks to the Ball Brothers, I am the matchmaker of all matches. Do not engage in actual combat as it is not within your power to provide me with opponents. I'm going to go off on him because you're not even a fighter since you compete in exhibitions and you lost like four years ago. But... Okay, Jake, you know what I mean. I'm not trying to chuckle because this is not the appropriate setting for this. And it's not like they should not be doing this in public. This should have been resolved behind closed doors, but here we go. Here we go. So it is what it is. I don't think it's your choice to give me my fights. So Nate Diaz and I can show off how uncomfortable Jeff Wittick is, by the way. Added one the microphone and making an attempt to join in with everything, as you can tell by what I'm saying. After Jake openly declared that the next fight he wanted was coming up, Logan suddenly appeared. He then attempted to wiggle his way into his brother's path. And you can sit there and think, well, that went well. They are people. Logan is free to act whenever he pleases because more people than Nate Diaz are in the same lane. Tommy Fury will battle. I believe I'm superior to you. Nate selected you for a reason. And everyone else does as well. Understands what you mean, even in the slightest. But what have you done to demonstrate that you are superior to me? Let's talk about this Joe, 50 years. So 50 years ago, you purchased this land. I purchased this land, 2.8 acres. It cost me $1.800. Last good deal. Chuckles. Nobody was moving into Yancey County at that point. It was the second poorest county in the state. There was land for sale everywhere where you could just have empty houses. Hey, you mind if I live in there? Sure, just mow the lawn once in a while. That kind of situation. Not anymore. Now Yancey County's very much been discovered, all kinds of people flocking here. Because we're an hour north of Asheville, is that why? Yeah, it's within range of Asheville. Anything within range of Asheville is booming. Little towns that were almost abandoned like Marshall over here. The main street was all boarded up. Now the main street is buzzing. So how did the locals take you when you first moved out here? By and large, they were very tolerant. It's kind of a mountain thing to be pretty tolerant of your neighbors, but... It was during the Vietnam War, and there were some people who looked askant at long-haired people, as there are today, I suppose, but by and large, people were pretty tolerant. Live and let live kind of attitude. Right. 
Joe. For many, many years, I'd say my annual income was well under $10,000. I've always been below poverty line. I don't worry about taxes at all. You grow all your own food or a lot of it? A lot of it. We've got land for it. We just don't have the people. You're looking for people to come out here? Absolutely. Yeah. Just to help, like stay for a little bit of time or be here permanently. Both. Eventually, somebody's going to have to take this place over. I'm 80 years old and my health is not great, so I'm thinking like an eight-person, eco-village, small community situation. This is a project to create what I call a paradise garden, which is various definitions for it, but one is a botanical garden of useful plants grown ecologically and arranged ornamentally, meaning a beautiful garden where all the plants are pretty much growing by themselves and I can become sort of a hunter-gatherer in my own garden. Okay, I just need to remember where they are, and when to get them, and so on. When I started, I'd been reading a lot of anthropology. At that time in the 60s, there was all this information coming out about hunter-gatherers and a lot of interesting, just how we got ourselves into the situation we're in vis-a-vis -vis the planet where we find ourselves being the most destructive chuckles organism ever. And a lot of the thinking was along the lines of it all went wrong with the beginning of agriculture. A lot of people think that's when all of a sudden we went from living as part of Gaia to wanting to manipulate. So the thinking is, of course, we wouldn't live like that anymore because there's too many people, right? So my response to that is to up the carrying capacity of my land. I want my land to be able to support more people. So how do I do that? I pack it with more and more useful species. Why do I do that? Well, A is figure out where they are. And the obvious place is East Asia, very similar bioclimate and so on. So if you want more plants, more diversity of plants, then you want more diversity of habitats. For instance, there's no standing water on my land. The water comes down from above in the national forest, and then it sinks into the ground. And the biggest peak in the Appalachian Range is Mount Mitchell, right? Right up there. So right beyond these trees, we're at the foot of the Black Mountains, and I'm the last place on the road adjoining the national forest, Joe. I grew up in Detroit, my family moved is what got me into North Carolina. My dad was a professor and he, he went to the Library of Congress for a while and decided he'd rather teach. So he came down to North Carolina. And so I came along with the family because free tuition, chuckles. Yeah. And then after that, I went off in the Peace Corps and lived with tribal people in Borneo for about three years and suffered significant culture shock when I came back home. Right. The culture shock was not going over there. The culture shock was coming back and seeing this glut of stuff that we have. Just walking into a mall like, you know? Um, I spent several years thinking about going back to graduate school and studying anthropology and going back overseas and working with these people. Eventually I decided I just didn't really wanna study. I was so impressed with their lifestyle. Here's people, you're coming out of Detroit, you know? You don't really do anything except have a job, make money and fulfill all your needs with your money. Here's people that build their own houses, grow their own food. They're pretty much self-reliant. All the communication is by river, little canoes along the river. They're really not going anywhere much. So that was amazing. And then they had their rituals and their costumes and just such a rich life that they had. Eventually, I decided I didn't want to study it. I just wanted to live it myself. So like, because they were all healthier and happier than people in America with so little, making so little demand on the earth. I was back in Detroit and my next door neighbors was a little kind of hippie commune of craftspeople and they'd got a line on some land right here in this valley. Okay, 
They were interested because a famous craft school is not far from here called Penland School of Craft. So I came down with them. And like most hippie communes, it lasted a couple years and then kind of imploded. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Why do you think they implode? Hmm. Why do they work well in Borneo, but maybe not here? Uh, maybe because we're all such individualists, you know? Okay. That would be one speculation. Sure, but that's what we need to create. That's the next frontier. Like I made this paradise garden out of a couple acres of land that was too rocky and steep and had never been farmed. Nobody'd look at it. Now phase two is to have a community to take it over and run it. This is my kind of signature herb. Mm-hmm. Which I think I introduced to America, actually. But I promote it as the best plant to grow for your health. Gynostemma pentaphyllum, Chinese name, Jiaogolin. It's a vine. It's actually in the squash family, but it has identical compounds to ginseng. And ginseng is very much under threat of overharvesting. Wild ginseng out of the woods is worth $1,000 a pound some years. Wow. This stuff is practically a weed, but it has identical compounds to ginseng. So I, what does it do for your health? Hmm? What does it do for your health? It's what's called an adaptogen, which means they're health promoting. They're not sickness curing. They're health promoting and they boost your immune system. This whole concept of adaptogens was actually developed by the Russians who wanted to win more gold medals at the Olympics. So they put a lot of research into their adaptogen because they don't have much ginseng. They have something called Siberian ginseng, mm -hmm. which is one that's right over here somewhere. So do you use all these plants in your daily life? That one I drink every day. One of the ways that was discovered, it was a folk herb. It was not one of the traditional Chinese herbs that's been used for thousands of years. Chinese government started keeping good enough statistics to realize that certain parts of China had an extraordinary large number of centenarians. People living to be 100 years old, like there's way more of them in this part of China. So I went to investigate. They're all drinking this stuff and calling it immortality tea. So that's kind of when it came to more global notice. It's huge now all over East Asia. It's coming to America. They call it sweet tea vine. It's showing up in tea shops. Mm-hmm. But it's not as big as it's going to be. Goji berries, whoever heard of goji berries 20 years ago? Nobody. It's a famous Chinese blood tonic. Now they're everywhere. Shizandra's another one that's coming. One by one, they come to America. Peter, if you go to your average doctor, mm-hmm, they're going to give... The AMA is not very fond of herbs. Okay. For various reasons, including historical, because in the last century, there was a huge rivalry between the herbal people, who are called eclectics, and they had their own medical schools and their own journals, and they were very active. They're the ones that brought all the American Indian herbs into Western practice. But there was a huge rivalry between them and the AMA, the medical establishment which the medical establishment finally won for various reasons. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you could say, well, it's because at a certain point in time, all the wealthy people, Carnegie and Rockefeller and Ford, pumped all this money into Harvard and Yale and Princeton, and nobody gave any money to the herbal people. Do you agree with that theory? Yeah, that happened for sure. Okay. I mean, whether you want to call it a conspiracy or not depends on how open you are to conspiracy ideas but it certainly happened, no question about it. And so for more than 50 years, people came out of medical school having been indoctrinated with the idea that herbs was a, a myth. They didn't really do anything. It was just folklore. If they did anything, it was just placebo effect. Okay. And that went on for a long time. 
The AMA denied that ginseng did anything right up until about the 60s. Okay. When the Russian researchers who actually coined the term adaptogen invented this rat swimming test, which is the first thing that proved that ginseng actually did something. So you can throw the rat in the water and time how long it can swim, and then you give it some adaptogens, and it will swim twice as long. And that's incontrovertible evidence. So they finally had to turn around and, well, I guess it does something. So then they had to figure out what it did, and that's kind of where the whole immune system was discovered. Was by finding out how these adaptogens work. Just in the 60s? Was my understanding? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's a very recent discovery in that sense for the West. Yep. This is your tool zone, obviously. Tool wall, yeah. Inspired by Chinese gardens. They divided their gardens up a lot with little walls into little micro areas. This is like an homage to Chinese gardens. It's mostly clay and straw. And this is all your power, huh? Yep. So that gives you everything you need pretty much power-wise? Yeah, well, we have another set of panels further out. We've got two different sets of panels. Okay, these will end up on the roof of the new building. You can see they're already getting into the shade. It's not an ideal location. Yep. Well, it's got to be tough down here because it seems like you pretty much have a small window of light, especially in the winter, I'm sure. Yep, we don't see a lot of sky. I've never gotten too much into astronomy because we have a very small piece of sky. So here's a chunk of Paradise Garden. Probably at least a hundred useful plants in here. Edible, medicinal, and so on. Those big giant yellow ones are mullion. Excellent for coughs. Okay. Yep. Fennel. Really good for digestion. And Jiro's good for wounds and so on. Echinacea. Everybody knows about. So what are you doing? Are you selling these off your property? You're not consuming all of this, right? You and your team? No, we sell seeds and plants. Okay. And then in the past, we've made lots of preparations particularly tinctures, but we also have made salves and pills and liniments and many, many different things. I also taught herbal preparations for a while at a school in Asheville called Taoist Traditions. The goji berry, I thought that was a tropical berry. No, 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 it grows way up in the North Dakotas, become weedy in certain parts of America. So what does somebody do, Joe, if they don't have your setup? You know, all of this sounds amazing. Everyone wants to be healthier. It's tough, though, if you're in a busy life. How do you apply this to your life if you don't grow at all? You just buy supplements? You can do that, yeah, if you're interested. That's how I started. Like I said, I picked up this book sort of randomly called Chinese Tonic Herbs. Read about them, sounded great. So I just ordered some to start trying them. I'm like, I want to grow this in my garden. So then that sent me on a long search to botanicals. Most of them are not available in America. Okay, looking for trading partners and seed savers exchange and corresponding with botanical gardens in Korea and Japan. Okay, it just led me. Nice thing if you're not trying to make money in your life, which I'm not. One of my goals is to earn as little money as possible without feeling like I'm suffering or something. Not really denying myself anything. I got a little wasabi plant. It took me like 10 years to develop that as sort of a crop. I never would have had the time or energy to put into that if I had a 9-to-5 job. I never could have done any of this if I had a 9-to-5 job. So how do you make your money if you don't mind me asking? We sell seeds, we sell tinctures, we sell plants. Okay. Currently, a lot of my income comes from doing plant walks, educational stuff, teaching. Okay, so I'll leave that link at the bottom of the video. Are you trying to sell more seeds or no? Sure. Used to sell a lot of tinctures, then the herb shop burned down. Okay. So we've now got a little temporary shop down here. We're starting to make tinctures again. 
That was not a spectacular source of income, but it was pretty steady. Anytime I'd walk by, there'd be just glass jars, all self-service. Okay, there'd be 20 or 30 bucks in there. Right, every time I walked by. Typically in the past, I'd have six to eight apprentices. I always had more applications than I had housing. Okay, now for the first time, I have more housing than I have applicants. We get a what are called woofers. You know that term? Woofers, I know that organization. They come for a week, but what we want is people that are going to come for the whole summer. Okay. Eventually, I need people that move here for the rest of their lives. You want them to live on your property? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm sure there's someone out there. Earn income by taking over one or another aspect. You could make a nice income just from the medicinal herbs. Somebody could make a nice income from developing herbal products. Someone could make a nice income from the teaching, website development, and then the big income possibility is this herb school, which I was starting to set up at the end of the road. I got a half acre up there at the very end of the road, last bit of national forest. The trailhead for the steepest hiking trail in eastern North America is right there on my property. Mm-hmm. I was going to start an herb slash permaculture slash ecology school, and that could provide enough income for the whole gang of people here. This is where I live up there. When did you build that? About 35 years ago. I've been here 50 years, but that house is about 35 years old. Everything we're walking by has uses. Wild yam and this lily has use in Chinese medicine. And the Apios americana is an edible, endangered species. Wild lettuce has been used as an opium substitute that is not very good. Are you still learning? Oh yeah, in this world? Oh, it's endless. It's endless, okay? Absolutely endless, yeah. Arrowhead, a nice wild edible. It's a water plant, but as I said, I don't have water on this land. So I buy these kiddie pools when they get cheap midsummer when the stores want to clear them out. What is this up here, Joe? This octagon? That is a yurt. Okay. It's the newest building on the property. Over on the other side of the deck was the oldest building on the property. Okay, way over there. So this is where the people that come to help live? Yeah, I've got five or six little shelters and I have ambitions to build more, particularly out at the end of the road where I want the school to be. The idea is to have 10 or a dozen very simple shelters for people who come for a week or a couple weeks, you know? So is this more of you want to pass your knowledge on to those interested or you feel like the world needs more of this movement and you want it to really blossom out? Well, it's both. People need to live differently. The way we're living on Earth is destroying the planet. I think we all recognize that. It's just like in terms of changing to a more successful way of life, how far are you willing to go? You know, when I talk about this stuff, people's first thought is all the stuff they're going to have to give up. Whereas where I want to focus is all the stuff you're going to get, all the positive stuff. You know this concept of forest bathing? Not heard of that one? Very, very big in the Far East. In Japan, they got a word for falling dead at your desk. They can say that in one word. People are just so overworked. So people are being prescribed to do this thing called forest bathing, where you just go out in the woods and kind of meditate and open your senses, your ears, your nose, your eyes and just absorb this natural energy. Mm-hmm. Well, you can put a helmet on somebody and measure their brain waves. And it's just a difference of night and day between somebody walking down a city street and somebody walking down a mountain path. And that's all very, very measurable. So the idea is to transfer my needs from civilization, which is my word for whatever you call it, the state or the economy, or just like the way everything works with money being the blood of it, back to fulfilling my needs from a direct relationship with the planet, with Gaia. Okay, so you built this by yourself or with anyone? With friends. 
there were half a dozen people, sometimes more than that, on work days. The upstairs is clogged up with books. I've gotten a lot of donations, more than I have places to put them. Taoism, you love lousy? Mm-hmm, I had a whole bookcase of Taoism. Now I'm down to just one shelf. Chuckles. Are these some of the supplements you take every day? Yeah, tinctures I've made for various purposes. There are a lot more of them down in the little herb shop. That's a feng shui compass. How does a feng shui compass work? It is incredibly complicated. Each one of these little circles will give you a piece of information. There's about 32. A very interesting concept. The Chinese are now working on scientifically validating it. Mm-hmm. It's been thought to be nonsense, you know, but it's very important to them. And you don't build a new building in China without consulting a feng shui expert about the location of it and which direction the door should open and like, is this a favorable spot? Originally, it was mostly for locating tombs. It's thought to be very, very important where you bury your ancestors. Like that's going to affect all of their descendants forever. Okay, you do all your cooking here? Yeah, well, we do a lot of cooking over there. I eat with the group typically. Great. They cook on wood over there. Over here, I'm unfortunately stuck with propane, but have you spent much time in China? No, just a couple of months. I mean, just about a month. The Chinese government invited me over for a conference on medicinal herbs. So it was great. I've been wanting to get to China my whole life, but I could never afford it. So just books coming in, donated books. Okay. Boxes of them upstairs that have never even been unpacked. This entire thing is about Chinese garden design. Something interesting to me, philosophy of Chinese gardening. Wow, so if someone is interested in this field, coming to you is like going to Harvard. You know, you're not the higher education institution, I'm saying, but you're the knowledge that took a lifetime to accumulate. Uh, on some of these topics, yeah. The reason Chinese gardens are so interesting to me is they're built for self-improvement. The idea is to create an area with perfect energy, because what you do in a Chinese garden is you practice Tai Chi, you do meditation, you write poetry, you do landscape painting, you play your zither. Mm-hmm. It's all like for spiritual development. So the purpose of the garden is to have optimum chi, energy, because we derive our chi from the environment. I like English landscaped gardens. They're very nice. But the Chinese have this extra dimension that is really a garden that is good for you. Okay, which is what I want my garden to be. It stayed balanced between the Taoists who said we should live according to nature and the Confucians who said we should live according to society. So the Confucians are the ones that want to kind of manipulate everything. The Taoists. But most of all, China has made many, many, many important worldwide discoveries. Printing, papermaking, gunpowder, the compass, this is all from China. But they didn't use it to colonize the rest of the world. Those are all discoveries because the Taoists were really interested in understanding the planet in order to fit better. Not in order to change it around, they just wanted to fit in better. That was their goal, yeah. So what's, explain again the equivalent of that in Western society. You were saying in Greece? Yeah, there was schools of thought that thought we should live according to nature. We now call them cynics and skeptics. And Epicurus was another one. Uh, but all that's left is fragments. There's not very much left of all the things they wrote, Heraclides and so on. A lot of it's very Taoist. What about the argument that, yeah, this way, let's just say away from technology, modern world, more off the land, more in tune with nature, isn't scalable for the average person. That is, you're in an apartment tower that holds a thousand people. You're really taking up very little space to have that existence. You're all sharing one roof. You're not taking up land. 
So in a way, because society, we have a fixed amount of people on the earth right now at this very time. If everyone was spread out, then there'd be no nature in a sense, right? I looked into it at one point and it might have changed by now because this was about 40 years ago. But the amount of land per person, it was doable. In America, it's doable. No, this was worldwide. The amount of arable land per capita. And it breaks down into like there's arable land, which you can cultivate. And then there's sort of agricultural land that would be more like pasture and so on. And then there's wasteland. And you can figure out, you can divide the number of people on earth into the number of acres of that stuff. And everybody gets about an acre of arable land and then another couple acres of this kind of number two land. But I, I, my whole project is wasteland. This land would not be classified as good for anything. Okay. So that's part of the experiment because it's too hilly. Hilly and it was 80% rocks. Okay. This was a very fun project. This is when it originally was built. This is the original building. Almost all the material came off the land. Well endowed with poplar trees. And I got plenty of rocks and I got clay to make cob out of. So it was just me and a couple of guys. The biggest machine that's been on this land would be a chainsaw. Everything is just hand labor. If you were young, let's say 30 years old right now, is there any way you'd do it differently? Arranging this lifestyle? I would have to rethink the whole thing given what I know now about the ecosystems and so on. I mean, I would still need to make a clearing because just for diversity of habitats, you know? Okay. You can't do everything in the woods, but part of the reason I'm interested in medicinal herbs is because a lot of them grow in the woods and I didn't want to cut down all my trees. So there's this whole concept of non-timber forest products which is mostly used in the tropics to try and get people to not cut down all the forest. Yeah, but it's equally valid here. I was very naive when I started. I never studied botany in school or ecology or any of that stuff. You learned all of this as you went along? Yeah. Okay. What would your advice? You've lived a lot of life. You have a lot of wisdom. What would your advice be for a young person? Get a hold of a little piece of land and just start and go from there. Yeah. Yeah, we used to have a really nice little cob dome. Was built at a cost of $1.50. It was like a kiva. Got bent in saplings and then put clay. It was beautiful. A tree fell on it and didn't really bust it down, but it kind of hurt it enough that water started to get in. So about 10 years later, there was a lot of rot. We had to knock it down. But it was wonderful. So that's like a house you could whack together for 50 bucks, you know? And you're off and running. You don't need much more than a pointed stick, really. You don't need a big bankroll. I started off here. My bankroll was, I think, $1.500 total that I got from a season of apple picking. We bought a bunch of tools and we bought 50 pounds of brown rice, you know? Packed it all into a little Volkswagen and here we were. The whole thing we need to do is live according to Gaia. That explains all the problems we're having on Earth. It's because we no longer have a valid niche. Once upon a time when we were hunter-gatherers, etc., we had a valid niche. We fitted into the whole system and then we went off on our own. But maybe the system was very communal. Like your trip, I'm sorry. What was the island you went to? Borneo. Borneo. Very communal. So that system works very well. Tribal. Yeah, tribal system. We're in a very individualistically driven culture. Has its pros, has its cons. One of the cons is how do you create these systems where there's community doing their part and working together? What holds it together? That's the challenge. Because there they have survival maybe to hold them together or some sort of spirits or gods. Kinship, tribal society, yeah. Society. So what do we have holding us together? I mean, religion's always been the staple for that sort of thing. Here's a book I'm reading at the moment. Okay, 
Is the answer in here? Yeah. Both chuckling. He's got a positive definition of the primitive. I see a huge dichotomy between what I call civilization and the primitive. The primitive being life in Gaia, civilization being life in society based on money. Uh, yeah, they have... Primitive societies are based on kinship, basically. Tribal societies, that's what holds them together. So you can always tap out here in a way. We're in a modern society. If you need help, you can go off this plot of land and someone or something's going to help you. Like even if you had an accident, you'll go to the ER room. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's that knowing there's something outside. For sure, that gives us the freedom to do this kind of thing. Uh, whether or not that's going to be available in 50 years. Chuckles. Peter. Where do you think, and obviously nobody has a clue, as a society where things are heading? Ooh, I think we've got a very, very difficult future coming up. Just merely with climate change, you know? Large parts of the country are going to become very difficult to inhabit. If we think we've got an immigration crisis now, just wait. Wait until everything below 30-degree latitude becomes uninhabitable. What are we going to do then? Politically, the one way people are reacting is to become more right-wing. They want somebody in authority to sort it all out for them. It's impossible for the government to fix the problems that are coming because the problems are caused by the government. But an argument would be, the right wing would say, the left wing is authoritarian and they want everyone to figure things out for them. Yeah, I know. Each side says the same thing. It's interesting. Sure. Yeah, there's this guy, Roger. He's still talking about Al Gore. He thinks Al Gore was trying to take over the country with his myth about global warming. Is Al Gore still flying private, though? Chuckling. I don't even know if he's still alive. I think he is. Joe. So this is... I've never done anything with this land very much. Introduced a few interesting plants, but it's mostly in its natural state. These are foreign. They're not native here, right? Oh no, they're totally native. Wow. When you get down more southern Appalachia, there's much more variety with the plant life. Yes, very big for variety, because we've got the northern flora meeting the southern flora. Right at this spot? Yeah, pretty much right in here. Mount Mitchell is the furthest south of paper birch. Okay, and a number of other things, whereas it's also the farthest north for certain other things. So yeah, we've got an unusually high level of diversity here. Very fortunate. Peter, if the grid went down, let's just say supply chains grinded to a halt. The grid goes down. How long do you think you could sustain out here right now with what you have? Uh, well, me personally, probably indefinitely. If I had six or eight people here, it might start to get more challenging. There's just any amount of stuff out there to eat, but that many people, it would probably exhaust it pretty fast. So we're going to have to get on the stick about boosting our food production. This is one of the shelters that we have. This is so cool. It's like a spaceship. Yeah, that's exactly my thinking. It's hard to explain, but these walls come in. Mm-hmm. And then you're looking down. It's based on a Mongolian dwelling, which was actually nomadic, called a yurt. Yeah. But this is a wooden version designed by a man named Bill Copperthwaite, who lived way up in Maine very remotely. He was off the grid more than me. Okay, had to walk into his place for about 20 minutes. Are there a lot of people doing this? I think so. I have no idea how many. I think they're scattered all over the place. Yeah, you wouldn't know. The more remote they are. There was a very big back-to-the-land movement back in the late 60s, early 70s. Most of them gave it up and went back home because their parents kept nagging them to grow up and get a job, but not all of them. So you have these lingering pockets. Cello, just down the road, is the oldest intentional community in America. Oldest intentional community in America? A mile and a half down the road. 
That's partly why I'm here. Cello Community Incorporated was started before World War II, had a lot of draft avoider types. It was started by a man named Arthur Morgan, first head of the TVA. He was the first head of Antioch College, if you ever heard of that. Sure, quite an experimental outfit. A lot of Quaker influence. They have like 1,600 acres. They've got like 50 families. It's an intentional community. They, but not like Twin Oaks. I mean, they don't all work on a business together. Everybody's got their own. They're driving off the community to work or something like that, maybe. They can drive off the community to go to work. Oh, sure, there's carpenters. A lot of them are craftspeople. There's doctors. So they just want to be with a group of like-minded people? Yeah, I think there's going to be more of that, to be honest. That's the next big challenge is for us to relearn how to live in community. Because our emphasis on money and so on, to fill all our needs, means we don't really need each other. Bees buzzing. It's so crappy that it would be pointless to try and fix it up. So we're just using it until we can get something rebuilt up above. Okay, there's a dirt floor, I mean, you know? It's like a joke, really, but we do the best we can. So these are all Chinese's herbs. So these you're purchasing, they don't come from here. Most of them grow in my garden. Oh, they come from your garden? No. What's in my garden is not enough quantity to do this. If we harvest stuff from my garden, we'll typically tincture it. Okay. These are tinctures in process. It's like a canning process, or what is it? It's preserving with alcohol. Extracting and preserving with alcohol. How long do you do this for? About a month. Then we squeeze them out and put them in bottles. Oh, and you're selling immune-boosting stuff, antiviral stuff, good for the brain, good for sleep, good for anxiety, good for broken bones. So you're selling this here? Mm-hmm. So people have to come here to get it? It's self-service. People come in, get what they want, leave some money. Oh, great. So if someone's in North Carolina, they just got to walk up here, come into this building, mm-hmm, take whatever, leave a donation. $15 for a two-ounce bottle, okay, is the asking price. I've thought about just not having a price and pay what you think, but a lot of people are happier if you tell them how much to pay. They don't want to have to think about that, you know? Water trickling. This is beautiful in here, Joe. This is like a whole nother zone. An old cabin? Yeah, that's what I built out of the trees that were growing here. Then I used some more of them to build the building that burned down. That was the first thing I ever built. I had a Foxfire book that told how a traditional Appalachian cabin was built. I personally am just very drawn to mountains. And mountains are very big in Chinese thinking too. Philosophy and medicine as well. If the herb is good for something, it's twice as good if it came out of the mountains. Because there's more of this chi energy in the mountains. I don't know if he's home. Jeff, are you here? Knocks. Door opens and creaks. Okay, so one of your workers lives here? Yep. This is so cool. There's two houses like this that also have a sleeping loft. And then there's two yurts, and then there's various places where we built a roof, but we haven't gotten around to walls and doors yet. Okay. The whole idea of this future community is it's going to be some gardeners and some builders and some organizers, some people that can do computer website outreach. Just a variety of folks. Birds chirping and bees buzzing. This is Ryan. He's been coming for several years. He's terrific help. And Kate, this is Kate's second year. She has a lot of gardening experience. Okay. She's great. Rich is just showing up today for the first time. Helping split wood. You just came in? Nice. This was half of my life work right here, the other half being the garden. So the half that was right here was my lifetime library, and it was an exceedingly good library. 
The whole back wall was books. It was full of books. And then the back end was my apothecary. It was a whole wall of tinctures, both Chinese and native plants, and another partial wall of dried Chinese herbs. Maybe a hundred different species. There was a cabinet which had my seed bank, some of them quite rare. The fire even was so intense, it affected the greenhouse over here. That also burned up. How did it start? It started by accident by a foolish person who made a fire in this very fire pit on the deck, which has been done thousands of times, but he neglected to put it out when he went to bed. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all it took. Right. At five o'clock in the morning, it was fully in flames when they woke me up. I ran downstairs, grabbed a fire extinguisher, looked outside, and dropped the fire ex- Laughs, forget it. The whole building was in flames. Right. You know, 50 feet high. This is where you cook your food? That's a pizza oven, periodically fired up for baking. This is meant to turn into a workspace at some point. You can see there's windows everywhere. There's just stuff everywhere. Kind of maddening. It's a lot to manage. Glance in the old yurt if you want. Oh, yeah, another yurt? Nobody in there at the moment. Yeah, so if you don't keep up on this, this is basically jungle. I mean, it's in two months it's taking over everything. There are no ghost towns in Appalachia. You go out west, you know, there's buildings that are 100 years old, not around here. They just get grown over? The mushrooms will eat it. This is the oldest building here. It's almost 50 years old. It's really on its last legs. There's a lot of rot. Okay, been neglected at different times. So just as an effort to get a few more years out of it, we covered the whole roof with plastic. It can't really be repaired. Oh, this one looks nice. It's one of my favorite spaces of all. There's something really nice about having a dwelling space without corners. Chuckles. Yeah, when everything you own is just like within your peripheral vision. That's what makes it easier to keep warm, for example. And this stays plenty warm in the winter with that one stove. It doesn't hold heat. Okay, but it's very easy to heat up. Yeah, so you can come in there when it's 20 degrees and you can have it comfortable in 20 minutes. It's on its way out, you know. It used to have an openable skylight, which was very nice for ventilation. So this is kind of a last-ditch effort to get a few more years out of it. I'm going to feel very sad when it finally has to get knocked down, but it's inevitable. Water trickling. Joe, more and more, the people that are moving in are more middle class, it seems like. They just want to get out of the city, the don't necessarily have the kind of idealistic goals that I have and had. I want to have some chickens and a vegetable garden. It's great. The pandemic really did that, huh? I gather, pretty sure that's where it's coming from. Possibly a certain amount of... I'm told that the phrase is doomsaying. Chuckles. I never heard that phrase until last weekend. But, you know, a certain amount of worry about the future. So it's wanting a better life, but it's also being worried that the life you have back in the city or whatever is not going to work forever. Anything else you want to say, Joe? Anything we missed? I'm sure there's probably a lot, but no, I think we did a good job. Just want to refer people to my website for lots and lots more information. Okay, and you're looking for apprentices to come out here? Yeah, to learn under you, to help out with all of this beautiful nature and to learn, hopefully people with some experience. I usually say you should have a years of gardening experience to think about becoming an apprentice. Okay, now we do take on woofers very short term for a week or two at a time. Okay, when we have the space. I don't know, maybe as a result of this video, we're all of a sudden gonna be overwhelmed. But long-term is more ideal, right? Like for the full summer season. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. Come back for the longer people stay, the more helpful they can be. 
So what they're getting for that is they get to live for free here. But the big takeaway is you're going to learn how to thank you for watching AI Unleashed beyond the code podcast. We appreciate your support and engagement. If you enjoyed our content and want to stay updated on the trends and breakthroughs, make sure to subscribe to our podcast. By subscribing, you'll never miss an episode and will be the first to know when new episodes are released.